Hello, welcome to Elsewhere. My name is Ian Ditchburn. This being the first episode in 2019, I felt it fitting to provide a little bit of a recap on where this all started, where we've come since then. 2018 was interesting, to say the least. It was globally probably one of the most traumatic years of my entire life. Well, paradoxically, one of the most rewarding and affirming years for my life personally. I think the only real way I can tie those truths together is by realizing that when certain things larger than yourself are going so horribly, it can bring into focus the things that you personally find important and would like to spend your life doing. And this podcast is one of them. I was a mess at the beginning of last year. I'd taken the year off school to escape what I was quickly realizing to be a deeply unfulfilling field of study. Shout out business management. And I was just going through a ton of anxiety surrounding what exactly it was that I wanted to do with my life. During that time, I decided to turn back to the only thing in my life that had ever made a ton of sense to me, which was travel. And I flew to Japan last January and spent just over a month there backpacking around. And perhaps not unsurprisingly, it turned out to be exactly what I needed. When I was growing up, we had a lot of students who would rent out rooms in our house. We had a lot of them come and go over the years, but one of them who always stuck out in my memory was a man named Shin. And I don't think he would mind me sharing this story, so I'm going to go ahead and do that. Years after staying with us, Shin managed to find me and my family on Facebook. I think it was in 2014, and he reached out to us and invited me to come stay with him and meet his family, as he'd done with us many years ago. And it took me several years, but I eventually made it over there. And when he picked me up from the train station in Nagoya, I hadn't seen him for about 15 years. But on the way back home, we stopped and bought a truly massive bottle of sake and stayed up till about 3 a.m. drinking, talking about culture, life, the sort of political situation over there in Japan, which I knew nothing about at that point. And at one point in the night, he stopped me because he needed to tell me why it is that he invited me to Japan, which surprised me. He told me that when he first went over to Canada, he hadn't really thought about what exactly it was he wanted to get out of life. In Japanese culture, you don't really think about what it is that's going to make you happy creatively. You think more along the lines of what's a good job for society, what's going to make your parents happy, what's going to bring you success financially, that sort of thing. And when he came to Vancouver, it was the first time in his life that he'd met 
a whole group of people who were making a living doing what they loved. And when he went back to Japan, he surprised everyone by dropping out of his civil engineering master's program, picking up a book, and teaching himself how to become a photographer, which is something that he has been massively successful in the last 15 years. He told me that he felt a huge debt to my family and to his experience over here. And that's why he invited me to Japan. Because they showed him that you can pursue what you want and what makes you happy. And he invited me to Japan to tell me the exact same thing. Pursue whatever it is that makes your heart happy. And yeah, I just feel like it was one of the most important nights of my life and definitely one of the most important nights of my 2018. So I just thought I'd share that with you. But uh, enough about me. I think it is high time that we get to today's episode. So far, we've covered such heavy topics as genocide, mass starvation, political oppression. So we thought we'd start off this year on a little bit of a lighter note with a focus on youth gang violence. All joking aside, this will probably be a bit of lighter fare compared to our previous episodes. Thanks in large part to our delightful guest, Mr. Aaron Chapman, a local author and historian who has written a book on 1970s street gang culture in Vancouver. The book is called The Last Gang in Town, the epic story of the Vancouver Police versus the Clark Park Gang, which I thoroughly enjoyed reading over the past several months. If you're someone who's new to the city or just curious as to how the East Side got its tough reputation, this is a very in-depth look on a part of our history that you might not know about otherwise. I'm going to play you in with a song that's pretty appropriate for today's episode. I used to listen to it when I was a little teenage delinquent skateboarding around East Vancouver. It always made me feel like a badass for reasons that will soon become obvious. It was much later on that I found out that the song is actually about the assassination of Harvey Milk and George Moscone by the fucking coward Dan White. But still being about police corruption, I figured it still fits the bill for our purposes. So off of their album, Give Me Convenience or Give Me Death, we bring you a fairly unique cover of I Fought the Law by the Dead Kennedys. Oh, 
Sergeant Harvey's brains out with my gun. Up on the lawn, Howard. Up on the lawn, Howard. Gonna write my book and make a million. Up on the lawn, Howard. Up on the lawn, Howard. Right. We are here sitting with Aaron Chapman, author of The Last Gang in Town. First of all, thank you so much for being here. I thank you. That, yeah, we've been trying to set this up for a while, so thank you for your patience and for making it in today. My pleasure to speak with you, yeah. Yeah, so I guess a fine place to us to start would be a bit of your background and sort of how you ended up being a historian. Well, I, I'm born and raised in Vancouver, um, which seems to be a rare thing, uh, you know. I get strange. that all the time. Yeah, it's strange to me that... Uh, um, that's the case because I certainly grew up with people that were, um, you know, born and raised here. But I guess people move away and whatnot. But I began to realize, I think probably in my um, maybe in my later twenties that I began to see the city change. You know, everybody talks about say how the city changed since Expo. It's really changed even more in the last twenty years in Vancouver, especially oh, downtown. Yeah. So I began to remember sort of as I would walk down you know some streets or recall certain areas of the city how much things had changed even within my own lifetime. And I found even with my own buddies, you know, I'm, I'm in my 40s now, but, you know, we would, we would talk about, um, you know, some of the old clubs in Vancouver and, and places like this. And, we, and I, I stopped for a moment there and I said, we, we sound like a bunch, bunch of 80-year-old men remar- remarking about the history of the city 100 years, you know, 50 years ago or something. This is only, uh, you know, a 20, 15, 20-year 20 uh, period that we're talking about. So that, I, I think, in a weird way, kind of got me thinking about... Um, Thinking about the history, I used to be a musician, a touring musician all the time. So I would sometimes leave Vancouver and come back a couple months later or something like this and realize, wow, the you know the bookstore on the corner is now a pizza by the slice shop. It never seems to go the other way. Um, but <laughs> you know, and, and, and just in a, in a if you leave Vancouver for just a couple months, it comes back and it's almost a different place yeah. uh, to you. So some of those things kind of began to sort of feed to me in the back of my mind, and I think um, I think it. Uh, I think that had something to do with it. And I'd been writing, you know, for a while as well. And it, and, and it, uh, I'd been, I was writing some shorter uh, uh, articles or, or some cover pieces for the Vancouver Courier, which is a weekly uh, here in town. And one of the stories I, I did happen to be about in, I think it was 2009, I guess it was, about 2008 or 2009, about the history of gangs in Vancouver. And um, uh, I had already written a book about uh, the Penthouse Nightclub history of the penthouse in Vancouver, this very famous uh, place that's been there forever, that's still owned by the same Italian family that's had it forever and has a remarkable sort of entertainment and crime history there where they both intersect. And about the history of the Commodore Ballroom, which is another, um, another music venue, concert venue in town. But I wanted to do something different I, uh, for, for this, and I, and, and I always had thought the article that I did in the, had the Courier um, always made me thought I could do something more with it. And... Um, that's sort of maybe how that sort of started, I suppose, in terms of the gang, you know, the, the story of the last gang in town. 
And when I when I tackled it, I realized as I began to interview some more people and dig a little deeper, I realized there was a whole other sort of section of the story that I didn't know uh, back then. One of the interesting things that happened was that uh, when I, that that original article first came out, the receptionist at the newspaper got a call, and she said, "Aaron, there's a." some old gang member on the phone that wants to talk to you about your article. And I thought, oh, God, who have I upset? You know, like, I'm in trouble or something. And it turned out that gentleman um, was a guy by the name of Mac Ryan who's in the book. And, and he, had, uh, he had read the article and, and said, oh, you know, you, you, you got everything right there. There's probably some more stories I could tell you if you ever want to get together. And, and you know, when you, when you finish one of these things, you have no immediate need to address the story for a while again because you've just done it. But I kept his number, and, and uh, I guess this was probably about four or five years after that article came out, because, as I say, this would have been about 2008, 2009. Um, in 2014 uh, or 2015, I, I started tackling uh, that story, The Last Gang in Town. So, And and Mac introduced me to some of the other guys that were – he was a, a former Clark Park gang member himself, and he, he provided uh, – he introduced me to some other guys that he's still in, in, in touch with and, and provided me a little bit more um, insight into that world, I suppose. Yeah, so in a weird way, the story kind of found you. It did. You know, sometimes these little, sometimes these small stories or, or uh, something that has to do on the periphery of uh, a story, once that's out there, it becomes like a little sort of fishing line in a weird way because then it just attracts more things. It's sometimes always frustrating because as soon as you finish a book, there's about maybe it feels like two or three days tops before this, it hits the bookstores when somebody sends you an email saying, hey, man, I didn't know you were working on this book, but my uncle has all these photos and all these stories. So I, I, that always drives you nuts because you thought, well, where were you eight months ago when I was when I was still in the midst of working on it? But uh, to a certain extent, that that I always sort of keep those emails, though, because sometimes, you know, there's a second edition of the book or something like this will come out. You can add to it. So uh, I don't I don't discard those those messages and phone messages and emails I get. I, I hold on because sometimes they'll feed another idea or another story or idea or something like that. Yeah, so. exactly. You never know where things are going to go. Yeah. So. Um, so, yeah, without getting too, uh, pulled into too much of a tangent right out of the gate, you used to play in the Real Mackenzies. I was that a, right? That's right. I was, a, I was an original uh, Real McKen- member of the, uh, a band called the Real original. Mackenzies. Uh, in 1992, we first started, and I left maybe about 98, I guess it would have been. And then I was on the road with a band called No Means No for a couple of years, just as a back in a sort of behind-the-scenes capacity because I was sort of helping tour manage. And, and during the show, I was the guy that sold the T-shirts. Uh, and whatnot, but it was fun to tour with those guys because uh, I mean, a you got to see a free no means no show every night, which and they're one of the greatest bands I think they ever come out of this province, and uh, and then I kind of got the itch to play again, and then I started playing with some other bands in town, uh, Bocephus King and the Town Pants and the Hard Rock Miners a little bit and and whatnot. So I kind of did that for a few more years, but around 2012, um, when the, originally that Penthouse book landed, kind of the the offer to do that landed in my lap, that kind of Sort of took me off the road from touring a little bit, but uh, yes, I did used to uh, run amok in a, in a kilt and a leather jacket and yelling in a Scottish accent at people uh, in, a, in, a, in a former uh, life. But uh, there's been a lot of other people that has been in, out, in and out of that band over the years. That people sometimes say, "Hey, you must know so and so." I was like, I, I, "That might have been." Ha- Some people have do like one tour and then they're like, "That's it, I've had enough of that," and and then they they depart. So I think everybody, like Andy Warhol's, uh, Andy Warhol saying, "Everybody will be in the Real Mackenzies for 15 minutes yeah. eventually uh, by the time uh, we're all said and done here." So. Yeah, I suppose there's only so much a liver can take. Really. <laughs> yeah, that's so maybe true. It's, it's yeah. good that you got out of there while you did. <laughs> um, so uh, being involved in the punk scene in that sort of way, um, is did, was that kind of the, the beginning of sowing the seeds of you getting interested in the punk scene, like in the, in the crime scene, in the gang scene in East Vancouver? Because I, 
imagine a lot of those guys went to the shows. Yeah. yeah. Well, there was, you know, probably in a little bit of a way, and certainly in terms of the interest of local, you know, local history and local music, and sometimes those things, they, they share some same uh, roles in some capacities, I suppose. Um, reflexively, there are lots of stories of people of a certain age in Vancouver who were, you know, especially if you if you lived and grown up through that punk era of the, you know, originally from the late 70s and 80s, there ev- almost everybody has a story of being at some punk party and some greasers showed up or the Clark Park gang showed up and beat up everybody and things like that. That you hear time and time again. Now, whether that was uh, the original generation of the Clark Parkers or some of these new people that took that name and almost franchised it and kept going, uh, that was sort of one of the mysteries because I, I, in high school, I went to high school in the 1980s, and even in the mid, sort of mid to late 80s, there were still people talking about these park gangs, the Riley Park Gang, the Clark Park Gang. And uh, I remember being at a party uh, up in uh, up in Caresdale, and it, a certain hour of the night, these guys showed up. They definitely weren't from Caresdale. They looked like East Vanners. They had Mac jackets. They were older. I remember they had facial hair. And none of us did. We were a little younger. Terrifying. And uh, and they started a bunch of fights and started just walking out with like a, you know, a VCR or a piece of stereo or something like this. And it was remarkable, you know. And, and then all hell broke loose and they were throwing boulders through the windows. And I took off. I stepped out the back and came back later. And the police and somebody else was talking about the Clark Parkers. And that was, I think, the first time I'd heard about it. And when I had done some digging, I, you know. It, you know, the, the Clark Parkers had never really been interviewed. That story had never really been fully told. I think the reason why the article had done well is because it really registered people where people remembered that name in Vancouver and people remembered that that era or were intrigued by it. Even It, it was almost like sort of a ghost story you'd tell people or, or, a, or a late night story to scare kids. Like, you know, don't go, to the, don't go to East Van at night. Uh, the Clark Parkers will get you and things like this. And it, would, it almost held that lore in, in terms of the city. And there's very few things... City's changed so much, and, and it's been so intersectional at times that, that we don't always have those those sort of stories in town. So that that kind of always intrigued me about it, and I suppose that's that's one thing that I wanted to get to the bottom of or try to explore with the book. So yeah, uh, I just want to say how much I appreciated the level of detail you go into, um, especially in the beginning of the book with your description of the area. You even <laughs> go far back into like pre-colonial times, describing like the the name of the Clark Park area in the original uh, native language. So that I, I thought that was a nice touch. Um, uh, the oh, good, book is yeah, yeah. The book is filled with all these like really great interviews with the former cops, former gang members, and with the with the police. I could uh, see how that would be a little bit easier. But for the Clark Parkers, how did you track these guys down? Well, it's it, you're right. I mean, it, it, to a certain degree, it was easier. Sometimes it's harder. Um, there's there's police are not necessarily that uh, even retired police uh, are not necessarily conditioned or trained to speak to the quote unquote media. And um, a lot of guys would hang up on me if I if I called, you know, because they they don't want their stories told, or they knew what as what, as soon as they as they found out what I was asking about, um, they didn't, you know, some of them these guys have kids or, or nephews or cousins on the police department, and they don't want anything that they did necessarily to affect good or bad uh, to affect their kids or their relatives' career in the department. So, in many ways, actually, the the, the police were a little trickier to talk to than the gang members. Is, at some point, um, you know, with with Mac Ryan first reading, you know, the Courier piece that I had done, uh, he helped and introduced me to Danny Mouse Williamson, uh, who, who talks a, a fair bit in the book, and and uh, and Bradley Bennett, uh, another one of the ex uh, gang members, uh, I found I believe online who had commented about 
um, something about the, that piece or something that had to do with the, the, with that story. So, uh, you know, so much of this work is kind of detective work that you have to do, and there's a lot of not just searching online, but searching old phone books and going down to the city archives and, you know, asking everybody you know, um, you know, especially if you know some people that are, have been in town a while or... or I, I find myself asking cab drivers, you know, like if I'm going somewhere, if they know anything about the story that I'm working on. So all these things sort of, when you put those feelers out there, it's amazing. Sometimes people will, will um, uh, you know, will reach out to you and, and, and help you introduce you to somebody and whatnot. But with the gang members, they it was a little cage here. You know, I, I first remember speaking to Mac Ryan up in Clark Park the first time we met and talked. And it was good to speak to him there because to be there right in the, the, the park where it all happened, I think brought back extra memories and helped me ask him the right questions, you know. Um, in the case of some police, um, there had been a couple of police that I had interviewed for the Penthouse book that were that were helpful, and uh, I think that I had largely come across as fair to them that when I asked them, you know, sometimes I'd find somebody or I'd find their name in the phone book and I'd call them up and I'd immediately get hung up on. And uh, some of the police officers that are mentioned in the uh, Penthouse book, the Liquor, Lust, and the Law, uh, if I talked to one of those guys and said, look, this is what I'm trying to find out about. I know this guy's involved, was it, or, or his partner, was it this or this. Do you think I could talk to him? And usually they would say, let me talk to him first, and then I'll, I'll you know. And I said, well, I, I tried him yesterday, and, and he hung up, and he goes, oh, he should have done that. Like, let me talk to him. Let me sort of sound him out on this. And, and then maybe a couple hours would, would go by or, or a couple of days or something, and then they'd call me back and say, okay, I talked to him for you. I told him what you're working on, and, he gets it a little bit more now, and, and uh, so those people are, are, are worth their weight in gold a little bit, you know, or, or the nice thing, the interesting thing is about actually people who worked in the, in the police departments here in Vancouver, in terms of any question of Vancouver history, you know, their job gave them a vantage point, whether you like police or not, I know people, some people are sort of more pro-police or anti-police, that has nothing to do with it, merely the simple fact that their, their job gave them a sort of a, a vantage point that the rest of us don't necessarily see. Um, and that within that, that can be really interesting. And if you can get those guys talking, they can sometimes reveal uh, a lot of stuff and a lot of opinions or just observations or a take on something that you won't really hear from anybody else. And it's a really unique, um, you know, occupation, you know, within the, the, the city because they, they see everything from some of the machinations at City Hall to, you know, how traffic works and things like that. They're, re they're really tied in that way. So uh, I've been really fortunate um, to have um, uh, some friends there in the, in the retired police community who sort of understand what I'm what I'm talking about, and, and I, I think largely that, that they realize that I'm, I'm, I'm what I try to do is with the last gang in town is really give both sides a fair shake and let them tell their own story to a certain degree, and uh, and I know people say that I sort of played it down the middle and they couldn't tell what side I was on. The truth to tell, I have friends in both communities, you know, some of these ex-gang members and some of the police, and, and uh, if you can sort of mind those people and, and sort of work with them to sort of tell the story correctly, I think you can do something in the middle that does explain a greater whole rather than if you did take a side or, or you were overly judgmental about anything. Any time of the, any of the history that I'm trying to write is trying to do that, that you as a reader, you can decide for yourself what side you're on. Yeah. And sometimes I think with The Last Gang in Town, that story, you start with one side, and then maybe your opinion changes at one point, and maybe it goes back, or maybe it doesn't. You know, like, uh, I, think, I think that's uh, the whole idea of The Last Gang in Town is not necessarily that the Clark Parkers were, of course, the last gang we've had. There's many other gangs, and we can talk about that, and, and they went on after that. They were certainly the last of their kind. 
but also the suggestion with the book is that the police at the end of the day are the last gang in town. There's going to be more of them. There's going to be more of their gang members than any more of yours. And uh, at the end, the, at the end of the day, they're going to win. They always do. That's the way it works, you know. And and that idea of of those sort of two sides was always was interesting to me, especially within against the backdrop of the times. So yeah, I think you do give them a fair shake, though. And um, I suppose the temptation is always to kind of romanticize that sort of ladsy teenage kind of violence. But kind of what we were talking about earlier. At the end of the day, these were people who were breaking into homes, stealing shit, assaulting people. Oh yeah, I mean yeah. The, the 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 you know the one of the things with the with the Clark Parkers at the time, and we're talking about. Uh, you know, uh, territorial street gangs that were around um, that, uh, and 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 so often associated with neighborhood parks because I think sometimes it was safer to head down to the park with your friends and even sleep down there than go home to mom and dad's place when they were drunk and, and beating each other up. So many of these guys, you know, came from broken homes and tough uh, tough situations that they were never starting out at the same place. So many of us were that we could maybe get ahead in life. They, they started well behind the pack thanks to some of the family situations they had you know um that 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 alone sort of makes them start at a certain a certain point that uh, uh that that is interesting you know to a certain extent but but especially in terms of as i say that they're not gonna the, the same future they're not gonna have necessarily have the same future that you and i would have you know like uh who maybe are grew up at least a little bit more middle class or mildly better advantaged than, than they were um but they went on to the, the the Clark Park gang and some of the East Van crime that was prevalent in the late 60s and early 70s was a serious thing. I mean, the, the, the police department um, noted the crime statistics that were prevalent in, in East Vancouver at, the, at, the, at those years. And uh, a lot of it had to do with, with uh, juvenile youth gangs and youth violence that was happening. It wasn't just them. There were a lot of things going on, too. But they really con- con- you know contributed to a significant part of that. And and. The, and it all came to a head in 1972 when, uh, after the Rolling Stones riot, um, when so many police uh, were injured on that that night, and uh, and the next day they secretly started to form this uh, gang squad called the H Squad to directly tackle that that problem because they had realized any time they had arrested these guys before or sent them to juvenile detention, they'd be there for a couple of weeks, a couple of months or something, and then they'd get out and they'd just go back and do it all again. So. Um, Probably having networked with other exactly, they in met jail. other people in in in, uh, in juvenile detention that uh, they simply went on to to become friends with or or associate with uh, outside of outside of being detained and being in youth detention. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, when I when I when you speak to the uh, the people who were used to be the gang members that used to be, uh, you know, at that time, they have somewhat of a ambivalent. I wouldn't say ambivalent. They look back at those days like those sort of young wild days and. And I'm sure they have some concept that they were, in fact, I know they do, that they were doing wrong. But they, they, and I wouldn't say they romanticize it because it's simply at the end of the day the only thing they know. Um, and you can't, no one is that self-critical that they always say, well, I was a, you know, it was a waste of time and that was stupid. You know, they just sort of, you have to at some point attribute it to a little bit of, I guess that's the way we did it back then, you know, like, yeah. Um, you know, a lot, most most of these guys now are, are are have been, you know, not only down on the straight and narrow and clean and sober, or and 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 contributing members to society. And they work now. They sort of got out of that life, but uh, it took them a while to do it. And many of them went on to, uh, um, once they became adults, you know, or as they became adults around this time, you know, they continued to to, to you know uh, involve themselves in criminal activity and when went to prison for, you know, uh, certain sentences and things like this. Others are dead. 
the ones that continued on, you know, and, and whatnot, and, or, or died or uh, were murdered or, or whatnot. So the, the, the story and the arc of those guys is interesting. And just like the police officers who are, have their own viewpoint and their own interesting um, opinion from their bird's eye view of the city, so too do our villains and outlaws in this town because they saw and they have a totally, you know, valid and interesting opinion of, from how Vancouver changed in their side too. So some of those two things are, I think, are, are what it tried to present in the book a little bit. Yeah, well, I think that uh, park culture is definitely still there, in, especially in East Van. I think uh, we, we, we all spent a fair portion of our you know, young adulthood drinking in the various parks around <laughs> East, East Vancouver, uh, perhaps getting into a little bit less trouble than uh, the previous generation, but yeah. still, it's still well, there. Well, I, I, you know, it's, it's funny because East Van, you know, East Vancouver, and um, East Van today still has this, well, East Van, tough, working class East Van thing, but I don't know how much of that is, is going to be valid in a few more years. There are million-dollar homes in East Van just like there are in Caresdale, and that gentrification continues to spread east, that, 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 that image, as I say in the book, of a sort of a tough East Vanner, within a, a next generation... The, the you know the guys and girls younger of us they'll hear us talk that way and think he's man like what do you mean like it used to be because that's very quick there's very rapidly becoming just a memory you know in town so so it's interesting to it's that's one of the other things I tried to explore you know that 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 idea and uh, you know how much the city's changed as well and as, as a backdrop using the lens of what happened with police and gangs in the 1970s just to show how how East Van and the whole city's changed as well yeah yeah I, I can personally attest to you the neighborhood I grew up in just used to all be like old. Chinese bakeries that were definitely drug fronts and now they're like you know hot dog shops where you play pinball and all sorts of like oh just, sure yeah the hipster uh, industries oh yeah. yeah definitely Hastings yeah, yeah. Sunrise is now the East Village right rebranded yes to the nines um, so yeah um, how do you think gang violence has changed since that time well it's a lot more um, it's a lot more violent one of the guys in the uh, Robert Wadsworth in the book talks about how back then gangs used to be really out on the street and you'd, you'd see them nowadays if you want to avoid a gang member or avoid gang culture to a certain bit you can kind of steer away from it or, or some of these guys kind of hang out on their own and they don't necessarily mix the bar watch program actually here in Vancouver has been very successful in kicking some you know gang members out of uh, nightclubs so to the fact that <clears throat> I've heard uh, you know wiretap uh, wiretaps of gang members that, that talk about when the two guys are talking about going into town to see a show or go to a nightclub or something like that. Like, I'm not going there. They, the gang squad kicks us out, you know, of all those places. We're not. I'm not going into town anymore. And so, so many of the the, the gang incidents you read about in the news today in the Lower Mainland have to do in the suburbs and Abbotsford, and Surrey, parties. and things like this, yeah. and house parties and other things. Very, very rarely, sort of happens in town. But in 2009, 2008, 2009. Just before we had the Olympics there, if you if you might remember back, there were a lot of gang shootings happening right in the city, kind of a record number of them. And that was probably the first time in many years that, that the city had been dealing with actually a gang problem. There's always little things going on. We've had the Joe Halls, we've had the Bacon Brothers, and those players are always against the backdrops. And sometimes there's a shooting in town, sometimes there, you know there's a, or an incident or things down. But a lot of it has to do, seems to stay out in the suburbs because it seems like, Actually, the the gang squad today has taken a page out of the old age squad book and, and harassing gang members to the extent they don't like to come into Vancouver. Now, that doesn't mean some of the runoff of their trade in terms of, you know, narcotics distribution, dial-a-bill things are still active and, and happening. That's a little quieter and that's a little lower level and it doesn't, it's not as out there. Um, so the re one of the reasons why I called it the last gang in town is because these guys were the last of the territorial sort of 
street gangs that run. You normally don't see those anymore. Um, you know, gangs now have no, in many cases, no ethnic background, you know, makeup. It's a very, it's a very diverse, very multicultural. Very um, Vancouver. Very Vancouver that way, yeah, and, and whatnot. So that's that's changed uh, quite a bit. Not that gangs weren't necessarily multicultural back then. It's the, 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 the Riley Park and Clark Park gangs in particular. Um, you know, were, these weren't all white guys or anything like that. There was a, there was certainly a varied mix of First Nations and Asian and, and uh, South Asian members as well, you know, that, that had to do with that. But, of course, it, it's really the, the money that's made in the international narcotics trade that it's really changed gang culture to the extent. And one of the things is, you know, with this era of, of the Clark Park gangs, a lot of these guys came from pretty poor homes. And they didn't really, you know, they were going to, you know, see if they could score this there or grab that there or see if they could get ahead a little bit because they came from a pretty lower lower class background. A lot of the gang members you see today are middle class kids um, or from good homes, you know. It's a classic thing within, especially there's a lot of stories in the South Asian community of, you know, a, a rather well-to-do family. And, you know, the, the, the male, of the, sometimes the senior male of the, of the family has been, in, just because, I, I, I guess it's just the avarice that can be made in, in, from drug dealing. They're going after that. So a lot of these, the, the makeup of so many of the gang members, it's not just that. They, still, they certainly still have people that, from, you know, disenfranchised and lower income homes that are getting involved in, in, in gang violence and gang crime and gang activity. But there's just a, a real shocking amount of, 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 middle age, of middle income and slightly upper income uh, kids from homes that are getting involved in, in that. And that's, that's kind of one of the, the troubling things that I know the police department's been dealing with uh, in that sense. But Yeah, I think, I think the biggest way I guess it's changed is it's, you know, it's, you make more money selling drugs than you do doing simple B&Es and knocking over pizza shops. Exactly, yeah. You know, the, the, the home invasions and, and, and breaking and entering is, is, is kind of small change. And that's... Um, you know, especially breaking and entering, that's, that's left now to probably, you know, some of the people who are drug addicted looking to score. Exactly. Uh, whereas that used to be kind of the, you know, average fare for, you know, so, that, so some of the crimes and some of the people who are doing them have changed. They're still happening, but they're just the makeup of, of, of who's involved has changed. And I think so, in the, at least here in the Lower Mainland, um, you know, that, that's the case. So, and, and, but we're quite unique that way in that sense that, um, Unlike some other cities, uh, you know, uh, Kieran McConnell from the Vancouver Gang Squad, I think he's just retired, he's talked about this. I know he's gone to Chicago and Los Angeles and um, a couple of places other, other than that in, in the United States and, and Europe to see the, how the gang crimes differ. And, and you know, the, peop, the folks in Los Angeles, the police in Los Angeles are often marveling at the, the uh, multi-ethnic makeup of some of our gangs and, like, with the... Uh, the UN gang and the independent soldiers gangs and some of these newer uh, things as well as they they've never seen a South Asian gang of, of East of East Indian backgrounds necessarily in Los Angeles because it tends to be you know Latin or, or African American down there so so we have our own characters and we certainly have our own makeup here that today that's so much different than than the way it used to be yeah as I've gotten older I, I've still I have seen some parallels uh, in, in your book and certain friends who I've known from high school who kind of stuck with that sort of edgier lifestyle. A lot of drug overdoses, if you were in jail, yeah. a couple even killed as a result of their work in the drug trade. But I suppose it's it's a lot, a lot less common to see kind of um, casual crime. You're either in and yes. you're in deep or you're, you know, maybe casually selling drugs at music festivals or whatever, but it's not like, yeah. it's not the same way as it used to be. Exactly, yeah. No, I, I think that's very true. And I, and I'm, and I think probably... Everybody out there, if they read the book, they can still think they can think of some people they grew up with or 
like you say, people you went to school with who were kind of like, oh, I know a guy that was like that and, and whatnot. I suppose we, I suppose that hasn't changed, you know, like uh, um, there might be more of them. There might have been more of them back then or, or, or they were certainly regionally connected, um, you know, but uh, yeah, that, that, there's some element of that, that probably hasn't changed as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how does it work when you're writing a type of book like this for, for this story? Is it considered a matter of public record or did you have to kind of pay royalties to any of the guys that you interviewed? Forgive me if that's an inappropriate question. No, not at all. Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a smart question. I don't think anybody's asked me that before. Um, the short answer is no. I mean, most people um, that I approached on it are, are, um, are happy to tell their story or, or, or if they go into a certain amount of detail. There are some people, there, there was a, a member of the H Squad who uh, preferred uh, me not to use his name. Um, and I, I, I did the interview with him, and, and, and I, we had talked a couple times, and then before the book was going to go to print, I, I called him back because I thought we had a sort of a good enough relationship, but he saw where I was coming from that he wouldn't mind. And, and, and he said, and I just said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave your name as is unless you want to change. And he goes, I thought about it, Aaron. Maybe you should change it, but I'll tell you what, if you, if you leave my nickname as Grizz, because I had a beard, everybody used to call me Grizzly Adams. At least the guys I work with will know that it's me and maybe they'll understand or get a laugh out of it even or, or certain certain stories that he was telling. Uh, but he thought it would be better if his name was taken out. I, I, I make a note in the book, anybody's name I've changed uh, and whatnot. Most people, I, I never paid anybody for an interview. Um, in the case of the gang members, um, I don't know necessarily how they felt going in. Um, in many cases, I told them that I would let them read anything I'd written uh, before it was published. So that that brought a lot of people's guard down. Um, and I w- did that hopefully to gain their trust, but also that became a fact-checking tool because I would be able to show them excerpts of that they were in and, and you know, before it went to the printers and said, let me know if I've got this right. And a couple of guys said, no problem, that's all right. Actually, there's one thing, Aaron, you, you, that didn't happen on the same day. There's, that was sort of two days apart. And they'd make some minor things like that. But most people, you know, were, were pretty giving of their time and, and, and giving their story. And I think they wanted to tell a little bit about what happened um, because they all certainly look back on that era and what happened in, in 1972 as, as a pivotal time. Um, the interesting thing is now, now the book's been out and we've done some events with the book or we did the book launch or I, I did a, a, a speaking event at the Vancouver Museum where some of the gang members and some of the police were there for the first time and some of the audience members came up to sort of get their autograph <laughs> from from both police and, and some of the gang members. I think they, some, these guys are all in their 70s, you know, 60s and 70s now. So they're up that age that they're, somebody's taking interest in what they were doing when they were adolescents or young adults that they're kind of amused by the whole thing or, or uh, uh, sort of pleased that somebody's taking interest in their story and things like that. So they don't mind. They, there's a, I think there's a quiet amount of pride they have or at least they're... they're I mean, you have to imagine yourself if you're in your, you know, if if you're lived to be that age and somebody's taken interest in your youth and has written a book about you, you probably, you know, and it's certainly you're you know you're you're not made to feel a look like an idiot in it, you know, like whether you might have been a bad guy or a good guy, but you weren't made to look like an idiot necessarily. There's some appeal to being uh, a bad there's guy. There's some there's something yeah, you know, there's there's even a certain yeah exactly the outlaw or or a little bit of the villain character that these guys, uh, especially the East Vanners, uh, still. Uh, Still like you know, and they and they realized that they were uh, they were there for something special, or they were there at a crucial time of Vancouver history in that sense that hasn't been looked at before. So, you know, people were pretty uh, all in all pretty. Uh, nobody told me to sort of take anything out. 
that I can recall, or I didn't have to pay for anybody's story. I didn't have to. I would. I wouldn't really have any money to give them. You know, like it's, it's, it's. Uh, uh, I'm not. You know, this is an Oprah book club uh, money that I'm making or anything like that. The, I, the, the books I'm very happy to say have done very well. They're bestsellers in BC and they do very well uh, here in the city and in Canada. And, and we they even are read in you know United States and Europe. But it's not as though that I have a king's ransom and wish to pay in interview subjects or something. Sometimes I take the guys out for lunch, you know, things like this. But uh, uh, you know, or I'll, just to get together. But uh, there hasn't been anything like that. But it's it's. Uh, it's a lot of it, it's a lot of interviews in that early stage and trying to talk to people and sometimes somebody will will lead you to somebody else and and uh, you know you try and talk to as many people as you can and and yeah, I think probably for Last Gang in Town there must have been sixty or seventy interviews I did you know and, and uh, that doesn't include all the work that's found uh, going through the newspaper archives and going through the city archives. Uh, getting photos from the Vancouver Sun and Province that are in their files from the Rolling Stones riot. Yeah, the photos uh, are great, by the way, and, and, and yeah. whatnot. And we were, and, and sometimes very fortunate in the case, in the section of the book that has to do with the shooting of Danny Teese, the Vancouver Police. I, I sent him a Freedom of Information request to the Vancouver Police Department to see if I knew they wouldn't show any photos necessarily, any any anything grisly of the shooting or anything like that. But I knew that there was an investigator that would have been sent out to take pictures that night. Well, what happened to those photos? Well, I, I, you know, when you do these freedom of information requests, you send them off, and of course you don't hear anything for 30 days immediately, and then they finally tell you, we need another 30 days because we haven't found it yet. The police department must hate seeing a letter from me because I'm always asking to look through the file. It's way at the back. It's way, it's dusty. No one's looked at it for a while. We, we don't even know if we have it anymore. That one got misfiled. It's, gonna, it's in one of those 30 boxes over there, you know. Uh, so Someone's getting overtime. Someone's getting some overtime from, from doing this, and... and uh, and the woman didn't have it, but I did have the case number. Um, I was very fortunate. The, the, the last day in town was, was, was very fortunate because I, with, that, with that book because there were a lot of people who had kept something. In the case of Brian Honeyborn, he had kept a brief, little briefcase of all the paperwork that had ever happened in, co- in the course of that, uh, in the course of the police shooting that was the involved in the investigation that he was the, uh, that he was the principal of. And uh, even the letters that he got in the wake of the, of the shooting where, where people were writing in uh, friends of his to say, you know, with a check even or with twenty dollars in the album, saying, "Here's, I know you've been suspended, Brian. Here's something to get you over the Christmas season." Or, or, and I quote some of them in the book. You know, he sent all those checks back and, and said, "I can't, can't keep it and whatnot." And, and uh, but uh, it was amazing that he had all that and had some photos and he had some of the paperwork where I could quote a case number and say, "That's the file number. That's the one you have to look for." Rather than me saying, "I'm looking for this incident," which is a lot harder because then they have to do a much broader search but if you can tell them that's the exact number you need then they can find it and and the woman at the police archives uh you know freedom the the information uh, bureau they have there realized that there's uh there was a whole other bunch of photos that just the police photographer had uh that had never been scanned so those photos are published you know for the first time um in the book and a lot of documents like that yeah. Uh, some wiretap material and, and some other things like that are all in there. So that helped tell the story. When you get these little pieces and you're looking, when sometimes somebody hands you something and, and you think, my God, this is exactly, I should just print that as a whole in the, in the, in the book. You know, like those are great moments because you think, okay, I've got a piece of something no one's ever seen before. Yeah. And even, be- even better, you know, there's a, there's, a, uh, there's a photocopy of a wiretap report of Danny Williamson's house. And in an interview with Danny, I said, Danny, I'm holding a, this this wiretap report and, and I read it out to him because he was it was just a phone interview with him and uh, so when you when you're able to ask those questions right then and there of something that he didn't know was happening 
or had I no, no idea that his phone was being tapped, well, that just adds to the story, you know, and adds to the intrigue of the whole thing in a certain way. Yeah, I suppose um, for a lot of people, the payment was just having their story kind of added to the annals of Vancouver history and kind of put down on paper. For sure, yeah. I mean, you know, it's always been surprising to me that in this port town of ours, that we we've only had we only, there's only sort of one villain back in the old days, Joe Salona, who was sort of the Al Capone of Vancouver, except he was into more into prostitution than, than rum running or whatnot. And I thought this is a this is a port city. We've had all sorts of hustlers and cheats and villains and bad guys here forever. Why can't we? You know, we need another. We need some new players to add to this. And the and you know the the, the Clark Park gang were not organized crime in the sense that they were mafia or like that they were disorganized crime which would have made, made them much more wilder but even to get them and to get that story and find out exactly what they were all about finally you know was was is, is i think you know it won't be last king town won't be one of those books on the shelf next to beautiful british columbia and one of those sort of nice books that the that the uh, uh chamber of commerce likes to show off vancouver but it will be in that little sort of dark sort of mean little dusty end of the of the bookshelf that that you know that they 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 hate to see kids take out of the library like no that's you're you're too young for that or, or you sh- that's not the Vancouver we want to teach you about you know that that'll be the story I think that uh, that'll be fun to uh, fun to share as years go by yeah I think there's definitely an audience for it though for sure there's there people. is there is for sure I think you know there's been an, there's been an amazing thing in, in in that's been happening with Vancouver history books in this last I'd say dozen 15 years from Vancouver noir uh, the Belshaw and Purvey book that came out up until you know just recently, Murder by Milkshake, Eve Lazarus's book um, that talks about Rene Castellani, um, the Penthouse book I think was certainly in, in that regard, even the Commodore book, and which is more of a sort of music related book. But we're, we're there's a lot more. Uh, we're talking about Vancouver in a much more interesting and sort of detailed way that we used to before, and getting into some of these stories that are our own. They're not a New York story. They're not a Los Angeles story. This is a Vancouver story, and. and I think you know some of the stories that are in Vancouver history that we have yet to tell, or yet to hear, are, are just waiting to be told. And there's a real sort of renaissance right now. I go into bookstores, and they, the folks at the bookstores tell me all the time that uh, well, some of the you know the, this show, the, you know the Vancouver history, people love this stuff. There's a real appetite for that. And I think because coming back to our original point, because the city's changed so much before our very eyes, everybody's trying to remember a little bit what the city used to be like before it's all gone. You know, and then eventually we're going to have an earthquake, which is going to destroy the city, and we're going to start again. We'll just simply empty the monopoly board, and we'll build up from there. And and, and we'll 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 need to refer to these books maybe to see what how do we you know how do we recreate Vancouver again or something. Yeah, well, uh, ho- hopefully there'll be a few, a few copies of the last game town. I hope still, so. Still intact. Somewhere. I hope so. Yeah. A tome. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it was it was great seeing the photos near the end of the book um, with just the photos of the the. Gang members, I believe they're all dated 2016, but yes. it's crazy. These are all people who I've like, I swear to God, I've seen around sure. town. Yeah, and it's like it just goes to show how full of uh, history the city can be if you take a closer look. Oh, definitely, yeah. And same, same with some of the police. You know, they're all people who live in town. A couple of them live out in the outskirts of town or have retired. Maybe there's there's a couple of guys that are up the coast, you know, or something. But uh, you know, Mac Ryan still lives in East Van and can still tell you stories about. Uh, there's there's probably a whole other couple of books just to do on him alone, and, and some of his buddies, you know, like uh, and it's it's great to sort of, uh, you know, think about. I my request to you, if anybody listening, go find the people that are in your neighborhood, maybe a little bit older than you or something like that, or maybe a lot older than you. You don't think they have anything to tell? Get them get them talking because some of the stuff they have to tell that they've never never told anybody, uh, or stuff that doesn't seem to matter, or 
you know, uh, you know, ask them about the clubs they used to go to. Ask them the restaurants they used to go to. Ask them how different they see the city, or if they remember what the city was like when they were a kid. I guarantee you, you'll, with your grandparents who maybe you have nothing in common with, or you see them every Christmas and you begrudgingly say a few words to them, get them going on that. You'll be, you'll hear some of the most fascinating stuff about your own family, you know, uh, that you can hear. So. Yeah, I, I can definitely attest to that. I, uh, I work in construction, and um, as I was reading the book, I uh, started talking about. Uh, to a lot of the older guys about like the Clark Park thing. Did you ever hear about that? And for a lot of them, their eyes just lit up. And yeah. Like, so I think they really appreciate people like you who are doing your part to kind of take the stories from that generation and preserving them so they don't just get lost to That's the, it. The That's it. And I, and I get emails all the time from people, um, uh, like you say, that you know that somebody told me about the book or I heard about it and I went and bought it. and uh, I remember those guys or I'm an old friend of... Uh, mouses is he still around can you get me you know pass me his number to him so it's funny how how a lot of people have reconnected uh over this and and even in the case of danny tease his family who, who contacted me and said we never really knew what happened with danny we, we just heard what happened in the newspaper and mom and dad didn't talk about it so now we know um and that's been that's been really sort of fulfilling in an odd way too uh, yeah. just to sort of let them know what, what did happen that, that night um, any books coming out for the future that you're working on? I'm working on one. Al Robson, who is a, uh, it gets a short mention in Last Gang in Town. He's a cameo. He's the guy that, the cop that walks into the New Frontier Hotel, grabs the gun out of that guy's hand, slaps him in the face, and tells him to smarten up. He was on the Vice Squad in the late 70s and early 80s, and he and some of the people he worked with have been telling me some fascinating stories that never made the newspapers uh, about what was happening with that. And then uh, I'm, That'll be it's a little bit down the line because I'm still connecting some of the pieces and some of the jigsaw puzzle with that. But the next one is going to be on um, some of the clubs in Vancouver that are gone. So a little bit more like the Penthouse of the Commoner book in that vein, but uh, uh, some of the classic sort of nightclubs that have disappeared over the years because they shut down, burned down, went bankrupt and whatnot. But everybody still remembers from the Town Pump to the Starfish Room to the Cave to Oil Can Harry's, Love Affair, all these places, as well as some of the, the clubs in Chinatown and some of the gay nightclubs as well that... Uh, really have a wild wild history to them so yeah yeah um, um any social media handles where people can follow you oh or sure yeah you? i'm uh, you can uh, find me on uh, twitter um as uh, the aaron chapman uh, i guess i'm on instagram as that aaron chapman uh try so you can you can find me those and i'm on facebook too i'm easily found uh i think as well or if you look up aaron chapman in vancouver or google aaron chapman vancouver you'll find something for me that you can you can track me down so Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you for doing this. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Aaron yeah. Chapman, Last Gang Town. All right, welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Aaron, who I'm sure we'll have on again to promote his new book, which we briefly touched on near the end there. Um, just before we go, I wanted to say a brief word of solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en First Nation who are being forcibly removed by the RCMP from their unseated land in order to build a natural gas pipeline. Now, whatever your opinion on resource extraction and pipelines in general, I think the fact that journalists are being barred entry to cover the actions of the RCMP should be alarming to everyone. And I think it's important to keep in mind that this is emblematic of a worldwide problem. Multinational corporations in South America have been known to hire mercenaries who go into the jungle and murder indigenous people there, making way for logging companies, other resource extractors. And what we're seeing here is just uh, another example of that same culture, the state protection of corporate rights 
So solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en and with those communities all over the world fighting for their lands and the futures of those last few untouched places. We're going to play you out tonight with a song from Aaron Chapman's former band. I think you'll find the lyrical content appropriate for today's episode. This is the legendary Vancouver punk band, The Real Mackenzies, with I Do What I Want. Catch you next month. <laughs>